came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up a scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today. Heavenly Father, oh how you love us. As we think on this, we think on you quoting Isaiah. We think on the passage, we think on the moment, we think on the time in history, we think on this moment. God, we, we come to you and we ask that you take all the things that are in our hearts, any anger that we have, any resentment that we have, anything that's held us back from giving our lives to you, our commitment to you, our whole heart to you. God, just take it all away from us. Place us into a place of calmness, a place of goodness, a place where we may be able to heal others. Heal us. We ask this in Jesus' most beautiful name. Amen and amen. Please be seated. This is uh, one of the uh, most beautiful and epic passages uh, that's accounted in one of the Gospels, or the opening of the Gospels. And you, when you think about it, you have to think about why Luke would have actually recorded this and what Luke was actually trying to say to us with this particular text here. It's pretty fantastic. I mean, it's in Luke chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles, you want to probably jump into Luke chapter 4 and just have a look at this passage and mark this up and read this yourself because it's just one of those that just leaps to you. I'm pretty sure if you were here with us when we went through our series on the movement uh, back last year and we talked about Luke where he wrote uh, and inspired through the Spirit to write the book of Acts, which is what we consider his second volume and Luke his first volume here, uh, that he was trying to say he saw a unique presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Jesus and the life and ministry of all those around. And so I'm pretty sure that as he came to this moment here, he said, look, I want to let you know that I saw that Jesus was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that he said that he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, that he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and then he said for sure that he was actually led back to Nazareth by the Holy Spirit. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced, that as Jesus stood there in his synagogue, which we would call our church today, that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit as to what passage of scripture he should read. And as they did, the missionary records this, that they would take the scroll and they would roll the scroll open. They would only open it and roll one way. So Jesus would read this. He had this particular passage memorized and he would have known backwards and forwards, but he would have known this really well for himself as he said this passage and he would have just said the way forward on this. I'm just going to use this Iron Man move that I did last week, which is basically where I have to uh, move the pack to, uh, to my chest. Um, it's right here. 
So uh, I, I should just do this as just kind of a de facto. It just feels kind of weird to wear jewelry. Uh, so, um, so let's see if this works and see if that makes a difference. I should say something, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that Luke knew what he was saying. And I'm pretty sure that Luke was saying that the Holy Spirit led Jesus to this text, right? Because it is important that Jesus chose a passage as an opening speech back home in Nazareth. Nazareth was a little town, 400 people or so. Everybody knew everybody's business. Everybody knew what was going on in their lives. And, and this moment, he would have had all of his relatives there. He would have had his community there. He would have had a following of other people as well. He would have had some of the rabbis come to listen to. What is this person going to say? And it's beautiful, actually, because the way that they did church, the way that they had celebrated in those days, is they would sit down and they would face each other, unlike the way that we do it. We do Greek church Greek style, you know, where one person stands and the other people listen, right? In the Bible, they actually looked at each other in community, kind of the way we do connect groups, where we, we dialogue together, and they would have uh, stood up to read the scripture. I've actually thought about this. I thought, wouldn't it be great if when we read the spoken word, you know, we said, we're going to read the spoken word, and the entire congregation stood for the spoken word. Wouldn't that be great? Kind of like, you know, when the bride walks in on the wedding, and everybody just stands automatically. And I know what some of you are thinking, another change. Yeah, I know. But actually, what you should be really thinking is, it's the spoken word of God. Wouldn't that be great? Just stand for that. Just like hear the word of God out of honor and respect. Just like rising. So that's what they did. They would rise to hear the spoken word of God. And then they would sit down and they would dialogue about the word of God. And so that's what they did. He stood up. He read the word of God. And they were so excited because what a great passage to read. I mean, he's quoting Isaiah 61. And it's all about restoration and hope. And they are so, yes, this is the passage. If you're going to read a passage, this is the one you want to read. This is the one that guarantees us our home way forward, right? And so they're really happy about this. And as he's going through, suddenly he just stops right there where he says to proclaim the year of the Lord. And they're kind of perplexed about this. At first they are marveled because they liked the way he said it. And then they said, but hang on a second. Uh, isn't this Joseph's son? Because they don't like what he says. Well, Jesus says this in verse 23 of Luke chapter 4. He said, now, doubtless, you will quote me this proverb right now. Physician, heal yourself. What have we heard you did at Capernaum? Do here in your hometown as well. He said this, and the reason he said this is because he knew. In that moment, he knew that he was about to say to them, the kingdom of God is wider than you. It's for Gentiles as well. It's something that he's been saying, by the way, throughout the entire First Testament. This is not a new gospel. The covenant hasn't changed. It's always been for everybody. You just never really understood it. So I'm just going to let you know it's for everybody. The kingdom has always been for everybody. I'm just going to repeat it to you. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in some town. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And they're thinking, oh, days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zephrath in the land of Sidon and to the woman who was a widow. And they're like, oh yeah, the Gentile helped Elijah. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Oh yeah, the Syrian, they worked with it. Ah, the girl, the little girl, she helped bring Elisha, the prophet. Oh my goodness. And this 
is the result. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with joy. Oh, no, I read that wrong. It says here, they were filled with wrath. They were filled with anger. Isn't that weird? Go to church, you hear a sermon. The sermon says, God has blessed everybody. He's used everybody. People are blessing other people. And the congregation said, screw you! I've had it! I hate you! That's what they did. They're like, I don't like this! Well, the people got angry. And you know that angry people are all around us. You just have to look in the mirror and you meet them. <laughs> right? What we're really good at is we're really good at just covering it up. We're really good at just suppressing it. We teach ourselves to suppress it all the time. When you get angry, just like, you know, we, we're like, woosah, just calm down. Just be calm, be calm. Suppress all your anger and just don't address it ever. Because that's what Christians are supposed to do with anger. We should never get angry. We should just be like calm and placid. Somebody, you know, does something to you, just stay calm. Somebody like whacks something on your foot and you get hurt and you're just like, hmm, just stay calm all the time. And what ends up happening is that we end up becoming serial killers in our minds. Not literal. I'm like, people are going to leave the church right away. Oh no, this place is dangerous. No, we end up becoming these kind of people that are just like tormenting ourselves all the time because we're not willing to address that inside us there is a struggle. Paul talks about this all the time. He says there is the struggle. Anger is important. He talks about it in your marriage. He says, don't go to bed at night if you haven't resolved the stuff. What we tend to do when we're angry and we're going to bed at night, what we tend to do is just sleep on the edge, right? You just go to the end of the bed and you lie down on the end of the bed and you're like, I hope I don't have to touch that person. <clears throat> and you're sleeping on the end of the bed. And, and, and the bed could be one of those double beds. So it's very, very small. But you're just on the edge there like, Ugh! and if they come close to you, like, oh, don't touch me. Jesus will forgive you, but I do not need the time right now. <sighs> because we don't want to address the stuff. And there's a reason why God says, address it before you go to sleep. Because if you address it before you go to sleep, you're addressing the anger in your soul. You're actually moving forward into a place of healing. See, anger is there to be a sign that something has to be done. That's all it is. It's just to alert you, to say, there's a problem. The problem is, is that some of us want to do something more with anger. We want to fester it and grow it and nourish it. We want it to become the plant that surrounds us. We love it. We label it. We call it other things. We call it, I don't know, sarcasm. We call it wit. We call it humor. We call it intelligence. We call it banter. We call it whatever we want to call it so that we can just be angry about something else. And we hurt other people. It happens all the time with anger. When people have power who are angry, they end up not loving others. They end up hurting other people all the time. And so instead of being kind, they end up with wrath. And what they end up in the Bible here, it says that they gather together to throw him down the cliff. Jesus just delivered a little sermon and said, by the way, I've come in to let you know that the prophecy that you've been looking at for many, many years is going to be fulfilled today. God loves you. And, and by the way, he loves everybody. Let's take him off the cliff edge. 
because it's not the way they want to deal with their anger. They have an idea of what anger, the solution, is. So here's the thing. With anger, there has to be redemption. Are you with me? Let's say this together. With anger, there has to be redemption. That's really good. Two of you said it. Let's try it again. With anger, there has to be redemption. Let's try it one more time. <laughs> with anger, there has to be a redemption. Ah, oh, that's good. So if with anger, there has to be redemption. The question is, what does that redemption look like? And many of us struggle to understand what redemption looks like because, believe me, what we prefer redemption to look like is more painful than many of us would like to admit. What we'd like to do is just cut somebody up, tell them off, and hurt them. That would be much better because there's so much pain that we've experienced. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that's what redemption looks like. Justice is over here. Now I feel better because I hurt them. Right? That's what redemption looks like. Jesus' idea of redemption is very different. And so our idea of redemption is really difficult. So the difficulty is this, is that the text ends in verse 19 of Luke chapter 4. It ends with the fear of the Lord's favor. That's not how the text in Isaiah ends. The text in Isaiah actually says one other sentence. It says, because vengeance is mine. And they're like, why didn't you say that vengeance is coming? Why did you say fear of the Lord's favor? And fear of the Lord's favor is a very special, unique phrase. And Jesus says, well, it's because that's actually what redemption looks like. You just want me to skip the fear of the Lord's favor, and you want me just to go to vengeance. But you haven't understood vengeance because you're still not understanding what fear of the Lord's favor is. And fear of the Lord's favor is basically a phrase that meant the year of the Jubilee. How many of you know what the year of the Jubilee is? Excellent. You're thinking... How many of you want to know what the year of Jubilee means? Same people, right? So, <laughs> the year of the Jubilee basically means that there was a reset of the clock every 50 years. So if you took out a mortgage and you're like, hey, I'm in year 48, year 50 is coming up, it gets reset. Hallelujah. This is fantastic. Right? Because there was a calendar. Every 50 years it would get reset. You would think to yourself, that's what happened. No, it basically meant that after 50 years there would be a celebration and it could be reset inside there and you would be like, be set free. If you had debt, if you were in prison, if there was some kind of catastrophe, if you were a slave, it would be a reset. It was a reset of the kingdom. There were not a lot of stories told about this because they didn't like to practice it. <laughs> They're like, I'm going to give you all your money back. I'm going to set you free. I'm going to reset the entire kingdom. No, people are like, no, no, no. I think we can get redemption without the year of the Lord. <laughs> I think we can keep it all and just continue as we are. We just need to go to the vengeance part. And then like Jesus saying, well, redemption, redemption, redemption involves the year of the Lord and it involves this jubilee thing inside here. And it involves expense. Something has to be paid. And you don't understand this, but it's not you paying. Something has to be paid. And it's very difficult for this. And this is why Jesus, when he started to articulate the vision and mission of what God was articulating all through the First Testament, he said to them, I'm going to push you all the time. He said to Abraham, listen, when I give you the blessing, the blessing will be for everybody. Abraham said, well, bless me, bless my children, but really bless the entire people? Come on, there's got to be another way. When Samuel came to him and said, Samuel came to the Lord and said, they want a king. And God said to him, well, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Do you understand? 
They're upset with me and they're rejecting me. Don't get upset about yourself, Samuel. I already said to them that I could lead them. Just hang in there with me. But they're just still stuck on this. So when he comes to Isaiah, Isaiah says, we're in captivity. We're tormented. We are hurt and we're angry. Uh, we want redemption. And they've, the people, they've looked around and they know what redemption looks like. It looks like beating the out of the people. What we really want is for you, God, to come and beat up everybody else. God says, Isaiah, tell them. Tell them that I am the one who will give them redemption and their vengeance. But tell them that it is together. And Isaiah pens it. They, of course, don't like to talk about the year of the Lord. They, of course, just love to talk about the vengeance. He says, now remind them. Remind them in Isaiah chapter 11. Remind them that the lion and the lamb will lie together and the children will lead them. Tell them that there is power inside the story. So Jesus at this time in Luke is quoting Isaiah 61 and you're thinking, I could have sworn we read Isaiah 63 this week, right? It is, because I needed you to be prepped for where we're going because it's a very difficult passage. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 63. In your Bibles, in the pew, it's page 693. 693. I put a little bookmark there so I could get there quicker than you. I got there. 693. Um, and it's Isaiah 63. It's a brilliant passage. I know that you're thinking to yourself, it's not that brilliant because you read it many times and you're thinking, this is horrible. Um, and we were kind of like, how do you read the story and then go straight into kids' life story, right? I mean, like, the last words here basically are, and I poured out the lifeblood on the earth. Hey, kids, come forward. Um, not, really, not really cheery passage, right? Because it's just a, a complex text, yet, yet inspired to be written. So what does this mean, this Isaiah 63? It's part of this wonderful trilogy that Isaiah is trying to pull us through. So he begins in 61, which is quoted, what Luke, what Luke quoted, what Jesus quoted inside there. Well, it says this, who is this who comes from Adam? And it's basically a Q&A session. That's what happens. Isaiah basically says he asks a question, and then there's an answer. He asks a question, and then there's an answer. And he does this Q&A session so that he can then tell the people, this is what's taking place, so you are aware of who God is. Because you guys have a lot of anger issues, and I need you to be ready for redemption and understand how this works. So he begins and says, who is this who comes from Edom? And there's a little play inside here that happens in Hebrew that you don't see in English, and basically it means this. Edom means red. Um, and inside there, idea of red, is it comes from the word from Esau. And if you go back to the story of Esau, Esau was a redhead. And Esau sold his birthright, right, his birthright for red lentil soup. And I will do that in another sermon. Mm, you're like, what's the significance of the red lentil soup and the redhead selling it in Edom? I know. I'm kind of excited about that. It's going to be in 2021 when we get to that passage. Uh, but it is really good. It's really worthwhile waiting for that one. <laughs> I'm kind of, when I've discovered that, it's like, no! And at Fellowship Lunch, you're going to ask me. I know. You're going to stay today for this. You're going to stay for Connect Groups. You're going to come to Fellowship Lunch. And then you're going to wait for Vision and Mission meeting at 2 p.m. You're going to say, what is the significance of the red lentil soup? 2021. It's worth the wait. All right. But there's a play inside here. Because what, what Isaiah is saying is that the 
color red is significant right from the beginning. The source of this person, he comes from a place that is red. It's crimson, his garments are red. It then says, well then let's describe this person. Who is splendid? His garments are splendid. Where does his strength come from? Well, he is super strong. And then he says, his response says, who is this person? He just says, it is I. Isn't it fantastic? It's just like, oh, it's just powerful. It is I. And this is an echo. If you set it in a cave, you're like, it is I. You would hear it echoed all the way back to Isaiah 61. Verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. 62, 2, the nations shall see your righteousness. It is I. Isaiah saying, God is coming. You're angry. You want redemption. I know you want vengeance. It's okay. God says, it is I who am coming. And then they say to him, well, how come you're all red? How come you're all red? Did you, did you stump around inside a wine press? Is that what you did to get all red? And God says, what? Did I stump around in a wine press? Do I look like a stump around in a wine press here? Did I look like I did that? Did I do that to get angry? Is that what I did with my anger? See, God says, I saw that I had anger, and I trampled with my anger. I responded to that, and the blood was splattered. There was a response to this. It's messy work, because I saw the sign. I saw that you were angry, and I resolved to do something that involved the blood, and it was messy. It wasn't like just like a sprinkling. It was like splattered all over the place. And why is this? Verse 4, and this is the most difficult verse. Are you ready? For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Vengeance and redemption go hand in hand. You're like, no, 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 Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Vengeance and redemption go hand in hand and heart in heart. They're all together. And you're like, no, 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 no. I'm pretty sure vengeance is a, a separate thing. I've seen Bruce Willis. Yippee Kaye, I know what that looks like. I'm pretty sure there's a vengeance that I really want. I'm not really interested in this redemption thing. That's just very soft and forgiving. I want really hardcore blood splattering everywhere. I want to feel that kind of vengeance. And God says, no, I've actually got a vengeance and redemption that are identical, hand in hand, heart to heart, combined mirror to mirror. And they're like, you know what, we should read a different passage of scripture. I just, I just, I just feel like this is just too complex inside here. So what people do is they read verses 5 and 6, and they're like, but then he said he trampled around in his wrath, and he's pouring around, and there's light blood on the earth, and I'm like, oh, I feel much better with that. Right? Bill Shula is a member of our church. He doesn't live here in Boulder. He lives far, far away in a place where there's lots of potatoes. Um, and uh, he was reading Daily Walk this week. And uh, he, as he was reading Daily Walk and reading the passages, he sent uh, an email to us and uh, said, hey, there are times when people read passages like this and they will struggle. Bill, you're absolutely right. They will struggle with a passage like this and they won't know what to do. And he said that his view is, is that he starts off with the premise where he begins with the passage always, and he says, what does the Bible say? God is love. First John 4, 8, God is love. It's as simple as that. He starts off with that premise that God is love, and then he says, then I get to a passage like this, and I'm like, I don't understand. 
head around, I don't understand all the places, and so if I don't understand it, I'm just going to read through it, embrace it, and if I don't get it, I'm going to read on. I'm going to keep on reading on until one day maybe I do get it, but I'm not going to give up because I believe all the time that God is love. If you believe that God is love, are you willing to give the doubt that the intent and motive is okay? When you know people, when you know your family, and they do something wrong, um, do you get angry because you are guessing their motive? Or do you give them a second chance because you know their motive? Or do you get angry because you really know their motive? You're like, I know what you really meant! Hopefully, it's because you know that they love you, right? And their intent is because they love you. And because they love you, they take these actions and they make these decisions and they call you to this place. And that's where we go. But if you don't believe that their heart is because they love you, then you get mad and upset before you even ask a question or try to resolve it. And so there's no resolving because you don't believe the motive is in the right place. God says, I love you. So when you read pictures of people who are inspired by God throughout the entire Bible trying to say, this is who God is, give God the benefit of the doubt and time that you are a human being. <laughs> you know what God's weird work is? What is God's weird work? That he created us with the freedom to choose. The freedom to say no. The freedom to say, I don't understand. That is God's weirdest work. That we could actually just say, I don't know. Forget it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. The amount of people that I said to them before is that you rejected God. It's because you actually have never really studied God. You never really looked at who God is. You just concluded who God is. You haven't given God the opportunity to reveal himself to you. I don't even know who God is entirely. I'm constantly, forever, in eternity, I will constantly be discovering who God is. You will constantly discover who God is. So you have to give time to develop this, to grow through this, to say, I want to be able to know more about this. And all the time as you do this, you will grow more inside. You will say to yourself, I can know more about this. John, who wrote those words that God is love, also said this, that there is no greater love than to lay your life down with somebody. He says this in his own gospel in John, right? He's excited about the fact that true love, true love when you actually are hurt, is to actually go give your life instead. But we don't like that. We just want this kind of human Bruce Willis vengeance over here. That's what we want. We don't want this redemption vengeance that God talks about where he says it's all about sacrifice. It's all about me giving myself up for you. We're not interested in that. We want the humankind driven by a kind of weird satisfaction. And the truth is this, is that you're never satisfied. Right? You're in the supermarket, you're pushing your cart along, and somebody tries to cut you up. And they do, even here in Boulder. And you just speed up a little bit more. Not that I've done this. And you make sure they don't get the line before you because you were next in line. And they go faster and you both clock that you're going to get to the till. And you're racing to get there. And if they get there, you're just like, oh, you're going to cut them up. And do you feel better when you beat them? Because when you turn around and find out that one of your members in your church 
I mean, do you feel better? Do you feel better with that? No. <laughs> Especially when you find out that they were one of your members in the church. No. What are you doing? Why do we do, why do, we do this? Revenge never makes you feel better. It never does. We think it will make us feel better because it's human. It's human because justice is not that. God says the greatest justice you could ever do is to sacrifice yourself in love to somebody else. That's kind of crazy. God says that's not, that's not justice. Redemption is really weird. That's why God says, hey, when I came and I died for you, did I ask you anything? No. <laughs> I did it all for you. I gave my life for you just to show you how to live for each other. I don't have this thing where I'm going around killing people. And I need you to understand there's a paradigm shift inside here. It is an entirely different way. But they understood this. The gospel writers, Luke and John and Paul, the apostle Paul, they understood this so well. And they understood the story back in Genesis where it said that there would be a hill that would be, bru- uh, a hill that would be uh, crushed and a head that would be bru- um, bruised. And they understood the damage that was going to take place inside here. They understood the lion, the tribe of Judah. They understood the Messiah- Messianic promises. They understood the strength that was coming all the way through inside here. So then they said, we want the lion. And God said, the lion and the lamb, they are the same. So John at the end in the book of Revelation says, let me pull it all together. So let's go to the book of Revelation, page 1131. Page 1131, Revelation chapter 5, 1131. Two more passages, final passages that I'd like to be able to share with you today, this morning, and it's Revelation chapter 5. They get to this throne room scene inside here. This, this uh, beautiful picture is painted here in Revelation chapter 5. And it says here, then they're, they're wondering, who's going to open the scroll? Who's going to be able to, to reveal the truth inside here? And they say, then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne and said, who has the, the authority? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? Revelation chapter 5. And then verse 5 says this, or chapter 5, 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. You who are angry, right? Behold, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, they knew this in Genesis 49, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And they're like, oh man, we know. Judah, the messianic tribe, we know the lion. He has conquered. He, the lamb, has conquered. They're like, this is great. And they're like, this is fantastic. So John says, don't worry. He's the one who's going to have the power to open the scroll. But he says there's more. He says, let me explain to you how he does this. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. And then he says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, then I saw heaven opened. And this is where John specifically quotes Isaiah 63. Because Isaiah 63 is this difficult passage. John says, let me, let me help you understand what this passage means. Let me take this image of redemption and vengeance and bring it all together for you, okay? So he says in Revelation chapter 19, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. What a great title, isn't it? Describing Jesus, he's faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and and his name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. 
and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That's his name. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which would to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and Almighty. And on his robe and on the thigh, on his thigh is name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we read all this language, and we're saying, where does John get this stuff? Well, John gets all of this from Isaiah 63. But what John does is he flips the script. He says, before the battle began, the rider has his clothes dipped in blood. What if? What if it's dipped in blood because of a sacrifice? What if it's not us? What if it's dipped in blood because of what God has done at the cross? Right? What if he says, he does this? What if the sword, Paul talks about this, what if the sword that comes out of his mouth is because he speaks words? Not because he's massacring anybody, but because he speaks words of truth. Because that's what we're called to do, to speak words of truth. And so this writer arrives to speak words of truth into your life. And John talks about this in John chapter 8 where he says, you just have to believe in the truth because the truth is what sets you free and Jesus will speak truth into your life. What if that's what it is? But God says, this is how I deal with it, is I speak truth into you, and you have to choose it. And when you choose it, that's where you stand, with your choice. That's all it is. It's just as simple as that. The difficulty is that we have all this anger, and we hold it back, and we circumnavigate all the redemption, and we dance over here to a human form of vengeance and we hurt each other with more anger because we never talk about what God has done for us. Because if you think about what God has done for you, how can you do it to anybody else? Right? I mean, seriously. If you think about all that God has done for you, what could be our response? Our response has to be only greater for other people. Now, where's Jackson? Jackson's going to bless us. And we're going to sing. So I'm going to invite you to come forward. And if you're brand new, you've never been to church here before, I see some faces here that I've never seen before. So I'm going to invite you. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen is this. On our website, front page of our website, um, right at the top there, it just says uh, Discipleship Through Community. Boulder Church, we exist to help you to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And we hope that you will actually learn to be a follower of Jesus Christ by actually connecting with each other through community. And so at the end of our service, what we do is we gather here as a community to sing our final song. And the words that Elijah has chosen for this final song here, oh man, they are powerful words. They are palpable words and they're words of commitment for you. And when you sing them, if they speak into your life, and you sing them with conviction and you're thinking, I've got to do something more about this, then come and speak to me or speak to one of the pastors or one of the elders. Don't let it just fade away. You've got stuff in your life, you've got anger. The anger exists to give you a sign and a warning that you need redemption and you need the vengeance. And all God is saying is that's, that's truth. It's the truth of Jesus that only Jesus can deal with it. 
So you need to go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I can't deal with this stuff. I need you to take all my pain, all my suffering, and all my anger. I need you to give me a way forward. And I want you to be able to live in a better place for that. So don't let it go away. So I'm going to invite you to stand. I'll stand right now. And I'm going to invite you to come forward. And then after we sang the song, Jackson's going to bless us. He'll be right up here. And, you know, the thing is this, that we have amazing kids. So if the kids want to come forward right now, they're welcome to come forward. And they can help us lead this final song here. But if you have the courage to come and stand with us up front here, I'm going to stand right here. I know that the temptations stand on the side. But there's some space in the middle here because this is the beautiful spot in the middle here. Uh, so I'm going to invite you to come and stand in the middle here. Yeah, Jen, come and join us in the middle. Lead the, lead the way, Jen. Be the, the courageous one. Cesar, come and join us right in the middle. That's it. I knew Cesar, you, you wanted to lead the way. That's good. God has called us to a new community. We are that new community. But we have to learn how to see each other and to look after each other. So as you sing these words, let God speak directly into your life. And let God speak away for your anger.